Welcome to the Truth CSGO podcast, episode 24. Today it's all about DreamHack Masters Marseille 2018. We have an IEM Sydney preview, a little bit of a sociological perspective on bully hunters, and some news like Dust 2's back in the map pool. So big news this week, Dust2 is back on the official map pool, which means Cobblestone is out. And the first time it's going to be played is going to be at IEM Sydney, which is in eight days. Now, my feelings about Dust2 are probably less voluminous than my feelings about Cobblestone. Basically, I hate Dust2. And it's a very simple reason, because uh, my aim sucks. <laughs> and I never really do that well on Dust2. I'm getting a bit old, my hands are getting a bit shaky, and um, I find that easier to outsmart opponents on the other maps, whereas with Dust2, I'm often just taking aim jewels and losing to the young kids. Uh, now, Cobblestone, I do like it, and I did have it on my Q maps when I'm playing, but it doesn't really have the same flow as the other maps, I have to say. The spawn area for for T-side is so large. I think if you're agoraphobic, (laughs) you're going to have to go B every time. And for casual players, once again, it's a a place that I just don't go because I don't have the aim to hold it. You know, if I'm going to hold, let's say, the mid-push from CT-side, I have to hold it from through that window that looks down into the stairs, if you know what I'm talking about. Um... I think, I, th- I think really the issues, though, with Cobblestone on the CT side, you basically have to have a, have a smoke like every round to smoke off plat. Otherwise, you're going to get rushed to be plat. And when there's something that you have to do every round or you're virtually guaranteed a loss, then it's not a game, is it? Because it's all it just comes down to you clicking buy grenade, getting good enough spawn to get there, bounce it off the box and smoke it. And that's not... A game that doesn't give you an option. That's no choice. There's no agency there. So I definitely think the B side B side needs shoring up. I actually also think the A side defense is quite hard in terms of if you're on site. There's not enough options on site for you to be able to hold the actual site. And look, if you are a pro player, there's probably more than there are for me because once again, my aim is poop. So. A lot of those are quite long aim jewels where you're defending, and I would have to find. I would find myself just basically hiding on site, even if I've got a full buy, because I can't. I don't have the aim to face down. Let's say someone from long, someone from wood, and potentially someone coming from behind APC at the same time. Um, so look, hopefully this map's going to come back redefined, structurally tightened up. Uh, you know, I would like it to be smaller. I would think that, that that is what they would do, but it could be wishful thinking. Uh, I think the tower is kind of ridiculous in there. I actually think it should be in the middle of the map. I think it would be much more fun so that people who save uh, have a much more, uh, much, much, more, much more of a chance of being challenged by the other team. For instance, if B, you know, the B players, sorry, the, the T players have an AWP, they go up, let's say, where the sort of where the entrance to the B, to the drop, drop is right now let's see there's a tower right there instead of back where it is then we know if they're going to be saving an orb or they had an orb and we've killed the other four players on the ct side um we know where to go we're going to go up those stairs in that tower 
and then you've got a really fun duel down some stairs that's potentially happening, you know, at the end of a round. So I would like to see that. Um, I think they'd be crazy not to do it. Uh, it's wishful thinking. Now, in terms of roster moves, there's been three. None of them are particularly huge with the Tier 1 teams, but we've had some changes at Vega. They've got two new players. They've got Crush from Pro 100 and Fierce, who was previously the coach. But I guess the big news about this is that Mir and Kashanda are now benched. And Mir in particular, or Mir, uh, has been a bit of a hot prospect for some time in the Russian scene. He's got the highest rating by far on his team uh, of 1.1. He's 22 only, and... He has been tipped in the past to potentially go to Hellraisers. Um, people bandy about the name Gambit. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes. Kashandas also was a, a fairly uh, good performer on that team. And together with Murr, he helped them get a bit of prominence sort of mid-2017. But the team did drop off for a while there. Apparently, it was some internal issues. Of, of course, it was internal issues. Now, Fitch has landed back on his feet at uh, his old home of Tengri. It's nice to see that his short stint on Gambit hasn't completely uh, meant that he's dropped off the planet uh, fully. So, I mean, that guy's not a spring chicken either. I think he's 22 as well. Perhaps we'll see something good from him in the future. Uh, We'll get on to his replacement Cs when we uh, talk about DreamHack Marseille. In the meantime, Steel has found a home post-Liquid, which is lovely to see with Luminosity, which is kind of where everyone thought he would go. Now, along with ex-teammate Zach, who is now the coach, he joins Yell, Neckis, Showtime, and PKL. So hopefully, Steele will uh, be able to put up better better numbers than he was at Liquid, being able to speak Portuguese much more fluently with the players around him. Hopefully, means that he's going to be uh, playing as well as he did at the PGL Major last year. Let's move on to DreamHack Masters Marseille. So, we had two days of group stages, some quarterfinals, some semifinals, and the grand finals. I'm going to go through the group stages because I actually think some interesting things happened in these group stages. We started off with a massive stomping from Envious. Um, on Envious, I should say. FaZe beat him 16-1. Envious were not looking anywhere near competent. Kiyoshima ended the entire map with two kills. And I think this is worth actually mentioning not because phase were playing really great but just because envious really weren't really really didn't seem like they were actually together and that actually arrived as a team we'll come back to them in a moment now uh, one of the other teams that i didn't really know much about was valiance and they played mouse sports in the group stages valiance are a serbian team kind of notable for having nico's older cousin hunter in the squad they were the old binary dragons team that were acquired in 2018 uh, 2017, sorry, in October, uh, they hadn't been together that much longer. They had a few good results, sort of tier two, tier three results. They were fairly new. They did put up a good fight, actually, against Mouse Sports, and that was on Mirage. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess they'd been able to do their homework on Mouse Sports, whereas the opposite hadn't happened. But I think this was a very good showing from a relatively unproved Serbian team. They were knocked out by SK in the next round, but I think Valiants are probably one to watch in the next six months. Uh, next up was Cloud9 versus G2, and Cloud9 <laughs> uh, 
It's a shame to see them without Stewie. Let's put it that way. It's like a chicken still running around after its head has been cut off. If you know what I mean. It's a bit like that Frankenstein movie where the monster's been damaged kind of so badly. It's been singed and electrocuted and shot up. And you kind of know that the Frankenstein monster's going to die. But he's still lumbering around and still manages to throw the villain into a vat of acid. Because C2, uh, C9 actually won this um, in the overtime, 22 to 20. They've still got the skills. They've still got something going on. But they are definitely not what they were. And look, this could just be a matter of time. They've got FNS now. He's got a whole new bag of tricks, I'm sure. But uh, whether or not the confidence that they've lost by losing Stewie is going to be replaceable, I'm not sure. Uh, next up was SK versus NIP. NIP won 16-13. Not hugely prophetic. NIP have traditionally been quite good against SK. But... Um, and, you know, it, it, Bolt's actually top-fragged in this, but I have something to say about Bolt's, and we'll get to that. Um, Stewie's showing with SK, you know, it was okay. And, in fact, his he was quite subdued until he sort of spazzed out and got really puggy and pushed through a smoke and sort of did Stewie things. And he actually looked like he might drag SK back into it. But SK were just missing shots left, right, and center. Forrest was playing at a high level. I felt like this was quite um, this this kind of this was a bit of a prophetic game actually for how SK did in this whole tournament. Fnatic then wiped the floor with Tai Lu. Liquid stomped Gambit uh, on Cobblestone, and I felt like Liquid were actually looking pretty good, although not quite as dominant. Funnily enough, as they looked with Steel, um, you know, I guess still a bit shaky with um, Taco. But uh, you would think that they wouldn't be that shaky considering how experienced Taco is. So anyway, look, they beat Gambit. That was good. Astralis were up versus Space Soldiers and Astralis just creamed Space Soldiers. 16-2 on Inferno. They were looking absolutely amazing. They had a lot of, uh, they had a lot of confidence from the analysts and casters going into this tournament because of their massive results online. Device was looking very sharp. Magisk was looking sharp. Dupree was looking sharp. All the names you wanted to see stepping up. And Space Soldiers just kind of disappearing once they got on land. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about them in a second again. Navi versus Renegades um, was the next group stage. And look, Inferno is often tipped as Navi's best map. And one of the reasons is because... I think Zeus loves to, um, what's it called? Rotate. Zeus is a chronic rotator. And, and Inferno is definitely one of the maps where you can rotate the fastest. Uh, and for all the, all, the, all, the, all the dirt that Zeus gets heaped on him, he actually played Renegades like a fiddle in this map. Every single time Navi got the bomb down, Renegades were waiting for full rotates from the other side. So... If you want to check out an Inferno side that, or, or, or a type of play that works really well, this is when I think Na'Vi did their best work on Inferno. Even though they played uh, high-level teams on Inferno later on, I feel like this was the map where they actually had it down. And um, especially in terms of a confusing T-side play. Renegades weren't great at getting info on the CT side, and they definitely need to work on that. 
but Navi were particularly good at faking where they were going. And I think if you even got a, even if you got a small amount of um, you know team communication going on, and then let's say you're in your in your queuing or your MM, check this out because you can do some pretty pretty good fakes if you uh, take some tips from Navi on Inferno. They wiped the floor with the Renegades 16-4. Now, Envious versus G2 was the next game. And Envious knocked G2 out of the tournament completely. This was on cash, 16-7. So, look, Envious, as I said, weren't looking good at all. But G2 were looking worse. All these issues with leadership and NBK and Mixwell, I think they're just too much for this team. Just felt like they'd crumbled completely. And, uh, look, I don't know why NBK gives an interview with HLTV just before this game, or this tournament, I should say, where he publicly says Mixwell has some serious issues as a player. Now, it's possible that he said that to Mixwell and Mixwell said that to him, but why would you call your new teammate out for that sort of thing? It's not, and it's not just PR. Like, I, I wouldn't say publicly Mixwell's a great teammate purely for PR reasons. You would say it for Mixwell, right? So that Mixwell can see that publicly you have given him a vote of confidence. This just seemed like emotionally fucking... What should, how, should, how should I say it? Emotionally... Uh, uh, sorry about that. I just had a delivery man come to the door and deliver a parcel. And I'm not sure what it is. I have an idea of what it is. But I'm going to open it live on the podcast. And you guys can uh, experience the unboxing thrill with me. Let's see. Oh. I've gotten one flap open. I've gotten two flaps open. What could it be? I actually know what it is. It's a new hard drive. It's a new hard drive. It's a replacement hard drive for the other one that was broken that I sent back to Lacey because it was shithouse. <sighs> this is the kind of life I have. It's full of excitement. It's full of fun. It's just all happening on a Tuesday <laughs> Tuesday morning. Hard drives turning up left, right and center. It's two terabytes of storage that's portable with a double f- dual firewire ports and a USB connection. What more do you need for a Tuesday morning? All right, let's get back to these bloody group stages. SK versus Valiance. SK knocked Valiance out of the tournament 16-2. They couldn't show up here as they did against Mouse Sports. Fallen was looking a bit bloated in the interview. I don't like to call out how people look other than making comparisons with celebrities. But uh, it did suggest maybe Fallen's gotten a bit soft, you know? SK won everything you basically can in 2017. SK looking in an absolute shambles right now. And here's my potential theory. Even though Bolts was fragging okay in the first map, dude knows for a fact that the rest of his teammates wanted him out for automatic. Fur came out and said... We wanted to get Stewie and Automatic. Oh, no. Was it Fur? No, no, no. It was... Let me think. It was Skadoodle, perhaps, who said that they wanted to offer Stewie and Automatic. Or maybe it was just Stewie. Anyway, fact remains, it's a public record now that these dudes wanted Automatic instead of Bolts. 
How is Bolts supposed to feel? I mean, that can't be good for team chemistry. How can you give 100% for a team that doesn't even want you there? Now, whether that's, whether that's the sole reason for SK's problems, I don't know. Like I said, it could be that Fallen sort of hit a bit of his uh, pinnacle, a bit of his peak. No one's hunger and motivation can last 100% all the time. SK were knocked out later on in these group stages. One of the other maps I thought was, or, or matchups I thought was um, interesting was Gambit versus Space Soldiers. And that's because Space Soldiers just once again absolutely shat all over the bed. They've looked unreal online. Like unbelievable. Every player in that team just hits all of their shots. It is unbelievable. But in this tournament, their stats were so poor, their strats were so poor, and their aim just seemed completely off. So either these guys are cheating, which, you know, who knows what the chances of that are? <laughs> I have zero knowledge of what the chances of that are. I assume it's pretty low. Or they just have issues playing in front of a crowd. So, you know, that needs a sports psychologist potentially or a coach or a manager who actually can talk to them in the right way. Space soldiers, uh, unfortunately have not had the sort of uh, land showing up, sh- sh- the land, oh my God, you know what, this hard drive has ruined my flow, so hardcore, It's I'm that excited about a two terabyte hard drive, I'm not at all, it's just knocked me out, all right, anyway, <clears throat> group stages, Space Soldiers were out, Valiants were out, SK were out, Envious were out, G2 were out, Renegades were out, Tyloo was out. And quarterfinals. First up was Mouse Sports versus Navi. Navi beat Mouse Sports on what is supposed to be their best map, Mirage. And then Navi won the second map, Inferno, over time, with Sipor getting two aces and 42 kills. Now, Navi have seemingly built this sort of synergy while no one's been watching, while everyone's been sort of laughing at the fact that Simple's just been the carry of this team. One of the reasons for that has been explained by the man himself, that Electronic has now been given a bit more free reign to do some fragging. I felt Zeus stepped up in this tournament a fair bit. And uh, Flamey's been pulling a bit of his own weight recently too. Now, bizarre that this team has somehow managed to fight back against the near roster changes, whereas SK have not been able to. It's possible that having Simple come back and seemingly act like an adult, at least publicly, by saying, I love my team, I couldn't have done it without my team, I really need my team, has actually done wonders for the team. So, what's his face? Uh, NBK, NBK, take note. It's not like the other players in your team are not reading what you say publicly. I mean, it's, it's not difficult to imagine that Mixwell, for instance, is reading HLTV. It's not difficult to imagine that Flamey or that Electronic or that uh, Edward or Zeus are reading HLTV as well and seeing what you say about them and actually taking that to heart. Now, we had FaZe versus Astralis in the quarterfinals. Astralis were absolutely dominating. They shadow over FaZe. Now, FaZe weren't looking too sharp. I have, to, I, have to, I have to backtrack a bit. Rain's all but dropped off a cliff since his higher level of play in 2017. 
He set a very high standard, but uh, he has not been maintaining it at all. Nico sort of still seems to be doing his best, but the team looks a bit headless at the moment. And I felt, look, one of the good things about Olaf Meister being on a break means that, for instance, on B-site on overpass, it's not just two people who want to keep making plays individual all the time. Nico can kind of do that and still have exist, for instance, sitting back there to stay on the side if he gets fragged. So... I think he's actually been set up a little bit better with this new setup, with this new team um, lineup. But uh, not even Guardian was dominating in his usual fashion at this tournament. And so it, perhaps it is a departure of Olaf Meister, temporary as it may be, that was sort of an even more demoralizing blow than being knocked out of these grand finals recently have been. Um, now, Exist certainly wasn't a slouch in this tournament. Um, he sort of seemed to perform quite okay. Uh, but Australis absolutely ran over them. Um, and look, I thought there was some interesting truth in what Carrigan said about the reason he picked Exist. So when Olaf Meister said, I need to take a break, whether or not that's what happened, when that, whatever instigated his leaving happened, Carrigan said, I looked around and the first player I thought of was Exist. The two of them actually did play together in Fnatic. I think it was back in 2002. So he knows how Exist plays. And he said he really wanted a support player for the team because with Olaf, Carrigan, oh, with Olaf, Rain, Guardian, and Nico, you've got four aggressive players. And he really wanted someone who could support the others, be a bit more passive, stay back on sites, maybe drop smokes, throw flashes. And he knew that Exist was going to be that passive player. Now, that's possibly how he's working on the team right now. And that is possibly what they need going forward. I thought Kirishima actually was a really good support player back when he was in the team for Rain and Nico. But something's happened in this team. The mood's changed. There's not that championship spirit here. And I think IEM Sydney might see something else drastic happen to this team <clears throat> if they do not perform. Hopefully, Olaf Meister will come back, but we'll see. Now, look, onto Australia. So this was an absolute pleasure to see these guys play. And I felt exactly like what the analysts were saying. <clears throat> the synergy in these guys <clears throat> was just on a level that we haven't actually seen, I'd say, since SK won, let's say, Epicenter last year. And not even SK had a five-man synergy going on. SK really played more in, in dyads than triads with two or three players at once, whereas it felt like Astralis had a complete five-man team strat. There was an interview with Majisk on HLTV where he said Dupree was playing the spots he likes and everybody was seemingly working now as a team back to their major winning form. So having Majisk enter and allowing the other players to not have to compete with, say, KRB for the spots like Dupree um, seems to have just like unlocked a new spirit in this team and it was seemingly forever ago that these guys won the major but actually it was only just over a year it's, it's weird how uh, time seems to stretch out in Counter-Strike tournaments anyway Nuke especially in this matchup between FaZe they just absolutely ran over FaZe like it was nobody's business and I think Nuke is one of those maps, especially where you need synergy in a team. You can't rely on aim jewels all the time because there's so many ways you can outsmart and outflank and uh, get behind other enemies. So I think FaZe have a lot of work to do if this is going to be the new meta again because 
team synergy just really is you know compared to where these guys are and they've now dropped down to i think third on the actual tv rankings compared to what they are and what the number one team now has in terms of team synergy the number one team is australis at this point after this tournament they've got a long long way to go and uh how do you create synergy with a team where one of the members is only going to be there for two months yeah i don't know so uh, next up in the quarterfinals was Ninjas in Pajamas versus Fnatic. This was an amazing series of three. Probably the the series I would say to watch other than the grand finals because NIP were playing on a very high level, especially Forrest and Dennis. Uh, but Fnatic just found that just that higher tier of individual play right now. And that came down to Crims going into God mode. He had 70 kills over these three maps. Um, personally, it would have been nice to see ninjas in pajamas in the finals in this tournament but i think Fnatic are definitely the scarier team right now and i think part of that is because get right is not somehow fully feeling like he's in the team right now and we're going to address a bit of that issue towards the end there uh in regards to an interview he gave we'll get onto that Anyway, Fnatic were continuing to be scary. Cloud9 versus Gambit was the final quarterfinals match, and this was very close. Mirage came down to very a very close score with overtime. But the, but the second map of Train, uh, Cloud9 basically wiped the floor. Uh, sorry, Gambit wiped the floor of, of Cloud9 on Train, and I guess that comes down a bit to not having Stewie 2K um, on Train. But... Uh, Gambit also looks slightly better with a clear IGL in Seized. Um, you know, he's obviously not the confidence booster that was Zeus. He put up some good numbers for these matches. But uh, being able to let a Dren and Hobbit, you know, just play as full-on single fraggers as opposed to having to one worry about what the team was doing seems to have elevated these this team back up a tiny bit, but uh, not... Not enough, as we were to see next in the semifinals where they played Na'Vi. This was New Contrain and Na'Vi won both of these maps. Na'Vi were looking absolutely monstrous and Electronic stepped up hardcore, especially on the first map. Um, I think if you like to check out some fun ways that you can hold down the CT side on Nuke, I would check out the way Zeus was playing on top of Hut with an XMS shotgun, the auto shotgun. That was really fun because I felt like Dosha was often pushing the same parts of the map each time, secret more often than not, and Zeus was having a really fun time locking him down and also sometimes pushing lobby. And I think you'll find that, especially at the level where I'm at, like DMG, DMG2, DMG2, MG, MG2, and um, where people just kind of tend to play the same places, you know? In their heads, they're like, I'll get in this time. And so you can quite predict predict quite well whether or not they'll, um, let's say, keep coming squeaky or keep trying to do a vent drop or keep just rushing hut. And so check that out. Check out Zeus's POV on this map for a bit of a, a fun little trainer on how to hold down hut. The next map train was a lot closer, but Hobbit didn't really feel quite unleashed the same way he felt back when Gambit won the major. Something's happened to that team as well. Maybe Hobbit isn't uh, fully behind Seized. Seized seemed like a bit of an impulsive pickup, so I wouldn't be surprised if one or two members of that team aren't particularly behind him 100%. A lot of credit here, though, should be given to Kane. 
Uh, Kane is the coach of Narve. He came over with Zeus from Gambit. And uh, I can't give him credit. I don't know what he was doing, but apparently, according to the players, he was doing some strat calling, some advice, and uh, had a lot of had a lot of credit for the way they bought, the way Navi bought, and sometimes forced in these maps. The next semi-final was Astralis versus Fnatic. I thought this was going to be a much better matchup than it turned out to be because Fnatic have looked so good recently. But this was probably the most interesting matchup actually, out of the entire tournament. And I think it's because this was the clash of the two big Counter-Strike metas. And when I say metas, I mean what's been trending recently in terms of how the game is played. And Fnatic really represent a high level of individual playing teams. So teams where they rely purely on individual skill, individual players making plays, being surprising, flanking other players and uh, and really relying a lot on their aim, aiming and uh, shooting skills. Whereas Astralis represent the synergy, the strats, the well-thought-out coordinated pushes, flashing for each other, smoking for each other, having set plays, having very well-rehearsed and well-practiced plays amongst three members, four members, and knowing what everybody is doing all at once. And... Uh, this is where Astralis's meta proved to be the far more dominant one. Now, these guys won 16-5 on the first map. And the first map was Astralis. It uh, was, was Astralis. was Overpass. This, is, this has been traditionally a very good map for Astralis. But it's also been a, traditionally quite a good map for Fnatic. But Fnatic absolutely got wiped. And seemingly, Fnatic had zero team play. And this is because Astralis' coordination would knock one or two of their players out within the first 30 seconds. Or, and this is probably even more important, Astralis just would not let Fnatic isolate any of them. Watch how Magisk and Device played bathrooms. This is probably the best example of how this, this worked. Let's say Device got a, good, uh, got a good spawn on the CT side. Ran mid, took a shot with the orb. The moment he'd taken the shot, he was running back, all the way back to mid-bathrooms. And Magisk had fallen back with him. There was never any one player staying long and trying for a pick. There was never any one player staying connector. Everybody just pulled back. And the whole team were, were all playing together, so they were never isolated. This is the kind of team play that you really have to practice. You, can't, you cannot have this sort of synergy without a huge amount of practice and communication. And it meant that one, let's, let's say someone got picked off in the B side, right? On Fnatic side, or, or two people got picked off. Then you'd have one player from Fnatic who was isolated long on the A side, or one player who was isolated connector. And so you got all these, all these rounds, round after round, where there was just one player on Fnatic left, or two players on Fnatic left, because they were completely cut off from the rest of their team. And every duel or... Uh, on every part of a, clearing a part of the map that Astralis took, there was always two of them, or even three. They were never facing one-on-one -on -one duels. And this is the hardest sort of team play to get. This requires a huge amount of practice, a lot of smarts, a lot of communication, a very good vibe between the players. But if you can do it, you can beat anybody because two players will beat one player, you know, 
such a high percentage of the time. Um, now, they did the same thing on Mirage. They beat Fnatic 16-12. Fnatic were able to get more rounds here, but I think Astralis were just as dominant. And, and the only reason I think Fnatic were able to get more rounds here is because Crims, JW, and Flusher were kind of closer together near mid and could trade kills more easily without having to have these synergized plays, these synergized strats. It was just pure proximity, whereas Overpass was so stretched out and such a, a disparate map. You can have one player on B and it might take him forever to get to the A side. <clears throat> and he's going to have to pass a lot of places where he can be picked off, you know, especially on the, on, the, on the T side. So this for me was probably the most interesting matchup of the tournament. And uh, if you're interested in sort of where the current meta is going, I'd say probably the one to watch. And... Also felt like, wow, this is when this is where Astralis, you know, really kind of a world beaters now. Fnatic have won such huge tournaments recently, and their individual skills have proven dominant over other teams whose individual skills seem to propel them forward like phase. So they are kind of the uh, epitome of that meta, and um, and yeah, just not strong enough for a well greased five-man team now the grand finals was Astralis versus Na'Vi and Na'Vi have been looking monstrous because of simple map one was Nuke and Astralis I mean despite Na'Vi having looked so good on this map in the quarters Astralis won this 16-4 like they have this map locked the F down Glaive played particularly well here unbelievable performance for an IGL I mean that's how you do it Carrigan and you've got to, you've got to imagine that he's not having to rely on his teammates to frag or to be in a certain position he's not having to tell them where to be he's not having to constantly monitor them on the uh, what do you call it the radar because these guys are so well rehearsed so Glaive can actually concentrate on just getting the frags himself I think this is what Carrigan will be able to do were that team as well rehearsed I think Carrigan's actually a good fragger but He's obviously having to give more mental energy to the team, whereas Glaive has it worked out and can actually play on it like an absolutely world-class level here. Zipnix came up with some huge clutches as per. I feel like Zipnix has the most insane clutches on Nuke and Overpass. That, that, that's just like, if the guy's playing Nuke, I feel like I'm going to get a massive Zipnik clutch. Um, Glaive said in an interview afterwards that he knew that Na'Vi didn't have a big strat book here. And they obviously didn't. Simple got 22 kills, and yet they still only won four rounds. So, you know, uh, <laughs> what's the reason for Na'Vi's success? It's not the strats. You know, does Zeus give a good spirit, a good vibe to the team? Probably. But strats? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, map 2 was Inferno. This was Na'Vi's pick. You know, it was, it was said in the day by the analysts, and... It's been pretty obvious that it's been Na'Vi's best map. But Astralis won 16-12, and this was hugely convincing again. Now, afterwards, Glaive talked about their sports manager, who used to be in handball, who has them practice specific things, like going into a server and just practicing executes, you know, for hours. And um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but a few podcasts ago, I was talking about some different things I was learning about sports psychology and practicing and, and the differences it could make depending on how you practice and the things you visualize while you're practicing, the things you visualize just before, for instance, you, could, you took a golf shot. But one of the differences between elite sports people and high-level sports people uh, 
So I'm talking about people who, you know, let's say you win Wimbledon once and the people who win Wimbledon, you know, year after year or three or four times in a career. The difference between these people, uh, a lot of research has found, is that the elite people practice really specific things when they practice. So their practice is intensely focused, whereas sometimes the high-level sports people just practice generally. And this has got to be a big difference between Australis and other teams. I've never heard another IGL talk about just specifically practicing really hyper-specific things. But the benefit of doing this is that you do not have to think about those specific things when you're in the map again because you've had them drilled so hard into you. So just deathmatching or just scrimming or just uh, you know playing retakes. Um, the retakes is kind of specific, but that's not good enough for this high level now. Every team needs to know, all right, if there's going to be a push, let's say, on overpass through Monster, what do we do? And let's just practice those exact defense strats for that exact situ- situation, the scenario. So I think that's a big key as to why Astralis are back on top now, focusing on those specific things. I think another big key is obviously Zonic. We've talked about him on this podcast before. And I think he's a big reason, one of the big reasons I enjoy watching Astralis because he's right there and you can see he's a part of the team and you can see how invested he is and you can see the relationship he has with him. He's patting his teammates, uh, the, the players on the back, like every time they win a good round. He's touching them on the shoulder, just going, you're fucking appreciated, you're validated and daddy loves you. I mean, that has got to be the most valuable thing for a team, right? Surely. These guys seem to have such a good team relationship and... There basically doesn't seem to be any other team that is having that much fun and has that much connection socially between between all of them. Now, as I said, these guys are now HLTV's number one team, and it's great to see them return to form. I said this earlier in the year. I think it was in Katowice where they kind of seemed to go, seemed to show up a bit. And I guess this was when uh, Majisk joined the team. The, one of the reasons it's so nice to see them back is because you, you can see the intelligence behind their plays. It's not purely the instincts or reflexes of Nico and Rain going off. This is a well-coordinated strat where someone gets flashed, someone flanks someone else, the team are actually operating together. Now, one of the big things that I thought was holding them back at the last major, and you know, I've mentioned this so many times in this podcast, but now that they're back, I feel like it's worth mentioning once more. One of the big things was that they were concentrating too much on anti-stratting other teams. And it was like having been number one earlier in the year, they'd been knocked off the spot. And instead of just going, you know what, we can be number one again, they were like, how can we be number one? Because all these other teams like SK have shown up and gone, we're better than you now. And so it was like they were concentrating too much on what the other teams were doing. Some of their plays in PGL major just seemed as if they were completely designed to counteract fallen for instance when they were playing sk and not actually the best thing that that team could have done to win the round on their own bat so it seems like they've got this confidence back with magisk the the scene the counter-strike uh how should i say it the landscape the environment has been perfect for a five-man synergy to come back and take the top because all of the big players really apart from Fnatic were in disarray although I would say even Fnatic you know have have somewhat of a shaky foundation because it was so weird the situation with Golden 
but phase you know looking in disarray cloud nine in complete disarray sk in disarray this was absolutely their time to strike and uh it's lovely to see the crossover between their obvious confidence and this opening at the top of cs so i'm really excited to see how they're going to do an i'm iem sydney uh last time they played there they were beaten by sk and face but i think this time they're definitely going to be the favorites overall i thought this tournament had uh, quite a lot of technical issues if you're like me and you're watching on twitch there were some weird whooshing noises <laughs> like um, just some sound effects that someone had queued that were just happening race, you know, randomly. Um, one of the other issues was uh, the camera shutters seemingly were unsynced with the, um, what do you call it? The hertz of the TV screens or the, the computer screens. I think that was probably an issue with actually the lighting. I don't think people were, were lit as well on stage as they usually are. Uh, the music overall I thought was a bit weird. It was kind of uncharacteristic and characteristic of an esports event, which actually I thought was a nice change. But sometimes I found myself checking my tabs on Chrome to see if I had something else open, like a Lord of the Rings trailer or something, <laughs> even just in a timeout. And I thought some of the timeouts felt like the music was sort of dangerous as opposed to like exciting. Um, so I don't think they made completely the right choices there, but I appreciated the the difference from the other you know, the dubstep, I guess, of the, the other tournaments. Um, in terms of the casting, now, look, I love Vince. I think he seems like the nicest guy. Um, but I did feel like Henry had to work extra hard to make up for Vince's, like, laid-back energy. And sometimes I just felt Vince was sort of giving him nothing and was just sitting there completely expressionless. Um, and I thought, look, I think Vince is quite good with play-by-play. Uh, and when once the round gets going and he steps in, commentating the action, he's not bad. But I did feel his smack talk and camaraderie and making the desk entertaining between actual play was lacking. And at some point he tweeted to people like, please stop comparing me with Sadikist. And I did, I did read somewhat of a retraction of this statement from him. Um, but I look, look, like, obviously it doesn't do him any favors to compare him with Sadikist, someone who's cast with Henry for so long but like you know if the height of simon and garfunkel's fame paul simon was to die and be replaced by some guy called vince i think it'd be natural to compare vince to paul simon <laughs> somewhat of a long bow there anyway look sadikus cheeky humor was sorely missed and unfortunately vince is kind of on the opposite end of uh, casters so uh, you know it was a bit of a contrast there um, you know, I, I should, I, when I first got into the scene, I actually thought Sadikus was a bit immature, but his humor's actually matured. I think his innuendo and free association actually is what has carried over. And as I said, I think that unfortunately highlights Vince's earnestness, which is, which, is, which is actually quite endearing, but it feels bland by comparison. So either Vince has got to loosen the fuck up, or um, in my opinion, or... Um, Maybe Henry's not the person to play with, uh, to cast with. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I thought he was good. I think he should get more tier one events, but um, that was my take. All right, let's move on. And by moving on, I mean moving slightly backwards because during this tournament and during Marseille, there was a slightly bizarre interview from Get Right. 
And Getright said he was worried. This is an HLTV. He said he was worried about the game. And um, it almost seemed like he couldn't quite put his finger on why he was worried. But the guy seemed to have this sort of foreboding. And um, he said, look, he hadn't been worried about CSGO since it started. And it started, you know, what, 2012? Six years it's been going? Um, and here's my theory about it. Here's my theory about why Get Right, Get right feels a little bit worried. And I think it's because of the lack of continuity we've seen within teams. Virtus Pro, the longest lineup, is now no more. Um, NIP obviously disintegrated over the last six months, or even longer than that. Uh, and recently, Exist has gone to phase. And as he said in this interview, it feels weird seeing Exist, someone he played with for eight years, wearing a phase jersey. So what does it mean to be a Ninjas in Pajamas fan now? It's like a whole new concept. It basically means being a fan of Forrest and Get Right, not Ninjas in Pajamas. What does it mean to be an SK fan now with Stewie? It means also being a fan of Stewie 2K. It doesn't really mean being a fan of that same team and that same idea of the team. I suspect Get Right feels that we are now in an era of a star player rather than the star team, which is probably a lonely feeling for him because you've got these players who've jumped ship, you know, for potential money and for the potential to play with the best players around at the time. FaZe is obviously the epitome of that. And NIP now have two younger players and an old rival of theirs, Dennis, who doesn't really have a history with these players other than playing against them. So what he probably feels is the end of an era and probably more of a business era in Counter-Strike where it's like whoever's got the most venture capital can buy the best players and assemble a team that hopefully will beat these older teams who've been playing longer and are probably a little more stale. What I sensed as well is that he regrets having broken up the team. And... I actually agree with him. I think it actually is not a service to the fans to have these Frankenstein teams and have these sorts of mm, stitched together lineups because it makes it harder for us to be fans. And when I really got back into this scene in a big way a few years ago, I was interested in the teams as storylines themselves i wasn't really that interested in the players individually and it was really easy to form an idea of a team purely because of their continuity i actually think csgo is in trouble if this continues and the players keep getting bought individually and keep jumping ship and keep breaking contracts and keep simply following the trail of money even if it ends up even if we end up in sort of some more fun super teams, like let's say Fallen does end up with Simple on his team. All right. Okay. Fallen, Cold, Simple. That's fun. But who am I actually going for there? Like let's say that, that, that it all comes under the banner of the Immortals team. Am I going to be an Immortals fan? No, not really. I mean, unless those guys then go on to play for five years, then I might be an Immortals fan. But at that point, it's just like watching um, like a muscle show, right? It's like going to a monster truck, like Derby, you know? You're going to watch some people wreck other people. You're not actually going to 
follow a storyline. And I think without the storylines and without the continuity, there's much less long-term potential for emotional investment from an audience. I think Get Right's been in the scene long enough. As he said, he's been playing since he was eight years old. He's now in his very late 20s. Might even be 30 now. No, 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 maybe not. Um, that he knows what Counter-Strike is. Right? He knows the scene. He's had the, the fans around around him for such a long time. And I think that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a feeling that we should take note of as fans and if you're involved in esports because there is nothing more important to this game as far as I'm concerned than the storylines and quite a few of these storylines have been interrupted in the last six months and um, what that means let's say if you're uh, thinking about a movie is that a character gets developed in the first half of the movie and you're really interested in this character and they've had a hard time in their life and they really want something and you see them going for it. And then before the halfway point or just after the halfway point, this character doesn't come back into the movie ever again. Or this character suddenly decides that they're going to switch what they want. Or this character just suddenly falls off a cliff. And all of this emotional investment you've put into this character means nothing. And you do that enough to someone during the course of a movie, they're going to get disinterested. And um, I don't think Counter-Strike is that different from one long movie, to be honest with you. Just one long <laughs> year-round movie with various installments at the various tournaments. It's basically like the Avengers franchise. So I think Get Right has indirectly identified actually a major issue with Counter-Strike. And Astralis coming to the forefront perhaps is somewhat of a band-aid for that. You know, I felt like Magis coming to Astralis actually felt like he was in an environment that that, that, that suited him far better than North, um, that suited him far better than Optic. And so that was not a move that felt like it wasn't part of the story. It actually felt like the right move. And now that that team are back, that core have been playing together for so long, Dupree, Device, and Zipniks, and Glaive obviously took them to the major victory last year. There's a continuity there. And there's a continuity I can definitely get behind. It's a story that I can very easily understand. You know, I don't really understand the Stewie to SK story. I don't really understand the exist to phase story. There's no, there's no, um, there's no, how do I put it? There's no rationale behind those moves just yet, you know? There may be in six months' time. That's going to take a long time for me to catch up, though. And uh, so get right. He's on the money. Let's move on. Okay, so one of the other things I wanted to talk about was bully hunters. And just before you're like, oh, crap, another another person talking about bully hunters. Uh, I think I want to say something that I haven't actually seen said anywhere. But before we, before we go on to it... Um, I know some of my listeners aren't all reading Reddit boards or HLTV or forums or whatever. Bully Hunters was a public relations campaign sponsored by a couple of prominent brands in the gaming industry that purported to um, assist people who were getting bullied, specifically women um, who were getting bullied by players online 
And the way that we're going to do this is that someone could contact a bully hunter gamer who was ostensibly of a high near, near professional or professional level who would then come into their game and actually beat the person in game, which doesn't really make any sense for the game of Counter-Strike because that you can't you can't just sub someone in uh, randomly. Um, anyway, basically, the, the, it, this was a sort of a... Um, uh, a reactionary, I don't know, meme campaign that, that that was all about women and harassment and, and the way women are harassed and abused online, which obviously is a definite thing. Um, now, I'm just going to take off my jumper a bit hot. Now, one of the things that happened after this campaign hit the public and burnt up because it burnt up pretty badly for for a few reasons I don't need to go into they were just kind of gaffes and 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 uh, mis miscalculations by everybody involved but one of the things was that I actually was playing with a girl she was a streamer she's not that prominent but she's Australian and she you know she's got a bit of a following on Twitch and uh, she was in my team this is a counter strike game and the moment she was speaking some of the guys in the chat and both and and also on the mics were having a go at her and you know what was interesting was that they were not actually they didn't they didn't seemingly want to actually have a go at her they were saying things like oh you know you're so you're a fucking girl just send her some nudes you're like you're a shit player you suck you know would have been better if that if that play was done by a man you know how much will it cost to rape you like literally this is what they were saying but I did get the feeling that they were doing it ironically. So it was like they knew that what they were doing was something that people did and they were doing it because it was something that people did, not because they actually felt like these things. Or they wanted to show while they were doing it that they knew that this was a thing that people do that is frowned upon, um, which kind of seems even more stupid than actually doing it because you legitimately, I don't know, want, want this stranger to send you nudes or whatever. Um, and it kind of felt like the way people type just what they see during chat on a Twitch stream, like mindless, um, you know, putting up your hand to say, I know the memes, like I count, I'm in the know, I'm part of the group. And I don't know if it's to her credit, but uh, someone said something rude to, to this girl and she told them to kiss her big nuts. So she had, uh, she had a bit of a thick skin. But I think the thing that this most made me think about is the way that women and men relate to each other. So I've talked a lot about toxicity on this podcast and, and how much I hate it. And partly that's because I'm somewhat of a feminine guy right i have a feminine nature that is more pronounced than some other guys i did get bullied in high school and i didn't take it well um i didn't fight back except for when my friends were getting bullied it was like if i was getting bullied i just didn't really know how to take it i was kind of shocked that people would say these things to me and uh i'm not a competitive person either i don't like to compete i think one-on-one competition is gross it makes me uncomfortable and because i was a bit of a loner or I had friends, but because I, I spent a lot of my time alone, you know, you, when you do that, you kind of get a sense of self-validation. You're not necessarily looking towards a group to always validate you. 
So I didn't understand why you would want to call an individual out in the way that bullies used to. And I'm going to get back to the men and women difference in, in, in a moment. But I did read something in this last week that gave me more of a sense of why we bully people. And I should caveat this. I think trust factor in CSGO has really changed things, like massively. I've noticed such a difference. The toxicity in players is, is, is barely there. Like I've, I've barely played a match with a toxic player since that was instigated. As you can see in the podcast, I don't have a toxic player of the week anymore. They just don't exist. It actually should be like lovely player of the week. In fact, I might do that in the future. I should do that. Why don't I call out the positive? Um, anyway, I'm going to do that. Anyway, the thing that I read this week was from this book called Fire in the Belly on Being a Man. If you haven't read it, if you haven't heard about it and you're a dude, check it out. Especially if you're, you know, late 20s, early 30s. It's all about being a man. It's called Fire in the Belly on Being a Man. It's by Sam Keane. Especially it's about being a man in modern day and what it actually means to have masculine qualities in a world that, you know, questions them, attacks them, labels them as toxic, etc., etc. Anyway, in this book, he was talking about Ernest Becker. And uh, Ernest Becker is another writer who's written a book, which I also recommend, called Denial of Death, all about how a lot of what we do is motivated by our fear of dying. But from one of his books called Escape from Evil, and I'm quoting here from on Fire on the Belly, Ernest Becker unmasked the glorious claims of nations and the warfare state, the promise to provide us with meaning for our lives by giving us enemies whom we can destroy and thereby prove to ourselves that we are the chosen people of God and showed them to be a demonic form of heroism. So Becker said, The horror we regularly visit upon each other comes not from any innate sadism or desire to act cruelly towards others, but from our desire to belong to an in-group. And to achieve this intimate identification, it was necessary to strike at strangers, pull the group together by focusing on an outside target. It is not our aggressive drives that have taken the greatest toll in history, but rather unselfish devotion, hyper-dependency combined with suggestibility. So this immediately made me think of what experience I've had with toxic players or bullies in Counter-Strike because it is almost, you know, unbelievably rare that you will get someone who is completely toxic by themselves. It's always when they've got a friend and often the friend is completely silent, but they know that they've got an audience. They know that they're a part of a group and this desire to belong to an in-group I feel it's such a strong thing. And one of the reasons women get harassed online is because they're a minority. They are not in the in-group. When you are playing with a girl online, it is such a rare occurrence. And uh, that to me has nothing to do with sex at that point. It, it, it purely has to do with the, uh, how do I call it? The desire we have to feel like we belong and especially in young teenage men, when you look to your peers for your identity, you look to a group that you belong to for your identity. That's such an important thing at that age that you're even doing it in a Counter-Strike match. Next time you're playing, look at the people who you're trying to get validation from, who you're trying to get communication with, who you're trying to uh, get, get confirmation of your opinion about your other teammates with. Because there's always someone who does something wrong or says something rude or does something right or says something right that 
makes you, that will give you an opinion and you will always try and get a confirmation of your opinion from someone else on the other team. It may just be someone you're talking to in TeamSpeak who you're playing with, but you'll want them to agree with you on one of your opinions. You may go, oh my God, that guy's playing a site so badly. Just so that your mate goes, yeah, totally. Bam, you're part of a group and you've made an other in your team. I know this is a really interesting quote and I thought it uh, applied especially to the bullies in game. But back to the men and women thing, I think one of the things that I haven't heard talked about in terms of this bully hunters thing is that the change in the way women are now part of the world and part of traditionally a man's world, for instance, in the workplace, uh, you know, playing violent video games, has meant that they are now up against the way men actually treat each other, which is very different from the way women treat each other. But it's in the game, especially when you don't have the face of someone in front of you or even on the internet, when you don't have the face of someone in front of you, when they're not standing in front of you, uh, then men just treat women like other men, which is to say they abuse the shit out of them. Men traditionally communicate far more directly than women when they're when it comes to social relations, when it comes to comp- competition in groups. And I think sometimes women just cannot handle this. And this is not a slight against women because you can definitely make a very valid argument that the way men communicate uh, is not always the best way. That sometimes the softness of approach that women traditionally have or the inclusion that women traditionally practice when they're leaders of a group in a workforce or a social environment is for the better of the group. That said, sometimes the way men lead groups, the way men compete, has a very uh, important part to the way hierarchies are established because it's a hierarchy of meritocracy that, that, that really determines most of what happens in this Western capitalist society, right? And that comes down to the way men do things, which is competition, and it's to see who is the best. And whoever is the best leads. Whoever is the second best is either the um, an, an ally with that leader and makes the leader stronger, or is a uh, competitor of that leader and therefore makes that leader more wary and therefore more vigilant uh, and therefore, you know, keeps establishing the hierarchy. Now, I'm starting to babble pretty hardcore, but I think this this whole idea of video game abuse and harassment and um, sexual language and rape language is actually part of this same confrontation that women are having in a man's world. Uh, As I've said in previous episodes my mates tell each other that we're going to do sexual things to each other's mother basically all the time, basically all the time. And, uh, and, and the kind of language we use towards each other is pretty vicious. And the things we say we'll do to each other is pretty vicious. Uh, and women just aren't cut out for that. They're not used to that. The way women undermine each other is through uh, indirect channels. So they speak to their friends about it and that friend then has formed part of a network, a bulwark, a social bulwark against that other person instead of just going up to them and going, mate, you're a cunt. And I think this should be talked about because it's not as if this abuse doesn't exist towards women and it's not as if it isn't totally unnecessary, right? Just as it is unnecessary with a stranger on Counter-Strike. But the discrepancy between the way we actually have a tendency to communicate is never mentioned. Uh, And I think it should be because it would mean that there is less of a one-sided debate about it and less of, well, men have to change. 
because it's all men's fault. And look, it may be all men's fault. You could put this completely at the feet of men because, you know, what did women do to get all this rape and harassment talk? But telling someone that something is all their problem is never the way that change happens, right? Because that is a completely one-sided way to approach even a discussion. You cannot completely lay the... Uh, even if this is the absolute truth, you cannot completely lay the onus for change on men. Otherwise, it seems like a, like an utterly one-sided, hopeless thing. And because we are competitive, we will then come back and go, well, what am I getting in return for this? What am I getting in return for this compromise, for this trade? For me to change, completely change my behavior, what are you going to do? And it's not clear that women have to change, right? But if it's softened with, well, perhaps, you know, women need to toughen up. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think they necessarily should have to toughen up. Maybe we need to raise the levels, the standards of communication, especially on the internet. Um, But maybe there's something that women can be doing as well that could be suggested. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know what it would be. The moment I say the words women should toughen up, I I feel like uh, I'm, I'm I'm in danger of being painted in a misogyny camp. And to say as well that someone should toughen up is totally ludicrous. How do you toughen up? You know, you just get used to abuse? Not necessarily. You know, abuse upon abuse doesn't necessarily toughen someone up. It can embitter them. It can isolate them. It can make them feel hopeless. It can make them feel angrier. Uh... But I think perhaps maybe it's just more of an understanding and an acknowledgement of the way that men actually communicate in their groups and socially. And the more we talk about that and the more we acknowledge that as the status quo, um, the less surprising perhaps it will be for women who come into these domains, you know. And I think Counter-Strike is obviously a traditionally male domain there's a lot of shooting involved. There's a lot of killing involved. It's all about competing. Um, there will be less surprise from the women. There will be less. It will be less surprising to them. It will be less shocking, um, and it will be easier to take. Now, one of the books I've been reading recently is called *The First Stone*. It's by a, an Australian writer called Helen Garner, and she was a feminist writing in the mid '90s about a case that happened in a Melbourne University college where two women accused, two young students accused a professor of groping them and went to the police and there was a big court case. There were two court cases actually. And one of the things that she reacted to as, a, as, a, you know, as, a, as an aged feminist, she was in her 50s at that point, was that these young women had gone to the police instead of either taking care of it themselves and slapping the man or telling him to fuck off or even just going to the university tribunal. And the difference between the way her generation did things and the way this new generation did things. And even though this was written over a decade ago, it actually feels quite prescient because a lot of what we're seeing right now with this online outrage culture is appealing to the public and appealing to the masses and appealing to the outrage culture of Twitter and the blogosphere and every website that wants clicks um, without necessarily taking care of things ourselves and i actually think this is quite a feminine way to do things uh 
looking to a group to fix your issues, whereas as men we traditionally are a little more self-reliant than that. And I think that is something that we should be talking about as well because I don't see this as being problematic. I don't have a problem with this. This is just the way women do things. But we should be talking about this because bully hunters is, is, is a, as a concept doesn't actually make sense to the way men you know, resolve their problems. It, it, it's not about getting your maiden to fight for you because that just means you have even less respect in a male competitive culture. It's actually about showing that you can stand up for yourself. So I think um, I think this was a, a campaign that actually didn't take into account really any sort of sociological factors surrounding um, why harassment takes place online and, and, and not even harassment against women, but harassment full stop. I think this is as far as I can go with this topic. So let's move on to an IEM Sydney preview. So I am Sydney has come up in eight days. Very excited. Um, we've got these massive teams already. Astralis, Space Soldiers, Cloud9, FaZe, Na'Vi, Renegades, SK, Fnatic, Mouse Sports, and NRG. And they're being joined by three teams from the Asia Qualifier and three teams from the Oceanic Qualifier. Now, I'm just going to do a little bit of a run-through through, run through of these six teams, just in case you are not that familiar with them. From the Asian Qualifier, we have MVP, PK, Tyloo, and Boot, DS. I think that's how you pronounce their, their name. Um, now, Boots, yes, they're a Singaporean team. They've been playing mostly lower-tier matches, but they've recently played a go uh, and Godsent. They were beaten by a go and they were thrashed by Godsent. They're ranked 52. I don't see them doing big things in this team, in this tournament, but you never know. They also weirdly have a Mongolian player in there. Uh, MVP, PK, you've probably heard of them. They've been playing some higher tier tournaments recently. They're Korean. They have an old dog in the form of Solo, who apparently has been around since, you know, Gabe Newell squirted Valve out of his um, orifice. But look, their most recent higher tier matches were defeats at the hands of Fnatic. They were defeated by Hellraisers. They were defeated by Furtis Pro. I don't see much potential for them here. But they're ranked 27, you know. They were in with a chance. Tai Lu, however, are ranked 25, so they're probably the overall strongest out of these three. They've also been thrashed recently by all manner of Tier 1 opposition, but they do have the most LAN experience. So out of these three teams, I'd say they've got the best chance of breaking out into a semis. Um, now, the Aussie teams are Greyhound, Chiefs, and Order, who qualified in that order. Uh, these three teams are pretty incestuous. In fact, the whole Australian scene is quite incestuous. There's back and forth victories. Everybody's beating each other all the time. People are being swapped all around. Um, I think it was... Who's the guy? Malta. Malta went from um, Chiefs to Greyhound recently. So, look, you know, it's hard to tell who you should be barracking for on any given day. Order were previous my top pick out of this bunch. They recently qualified for IEM Katowice. They did get reamed over there by FaZe and NIP. They got reamed by Space Soldiers at WSG. But Order have had a taste of the big land life, and I think they're hungry. They've kicked their coach, David, who was the former coach for Complexity. Um, there wasn't actually a public statement as to why they did that. Um, I assume it wasn't you know, a mutual decision, as David's been looking for work since. He's ignored my emails for an interview. 
uh, David, if you're listening, you know, I'd love to have you on and hear what you've got to say. But I think I think Order definitely have something to prove, right? And if you are not following Alistair on Twitter, I suggest you do it, unless you're under 18. Alistair is quite possibly the maddest lad um, I follow on Twitter. I follow all the other pros, and they're quite they're quite tame by comparison. Um, you know, if Order were to suddenly shoot up the HLTV rankings to uh, to let's say even top 20, I think Order would want to put a social media uh, strategist uh, on Alistair's case, maybe take him to the office, have a sit, bit of a sit, a bit of a chat down, uh, a bit of a sit down, a bit of a chat, I should say. And um, if that happens, I think we won't be seeing some of the loose stuff that's going on on Alistair's Twitter. So get in there while you still can, follow his Twitter, check out what he's posting because it may not last forever. Other than that, I would say out of order, Seiko is the highest rated player and the one to watch. Now, Chiefs, they were the best performing Aussie team at last year's IEM, surprisingly outperforming Renegades. I think they beat Astralis as well. Hopefully, these guys are going to do what NIP does at Oakland every year and just basically show up for tradition's sake. Although, it's not exactly the same squad. Tux is the only remaining member of that roster. He was in the crowd last year and, if I remember correctly, did a fairly decent shoey. So I'll be looking at his form closely. Uh, now, Chiefs' last Tier 1 fight was Space Soldiers back in January, and they got thrashed. I don't have high hopes for them, but you never know. Greyhound, I actually know very little about. They 2 kneeled Vega Squadron back in December. That's their last sort of notable land performance. But for the most part, they've been puttering about in Oceanic matches. They recently released Burn, Are You OK? And as I said, replaced him with Malta from Chiefs. So, you know, new lineup. Maybe they've got something to prove. I would keep an eye on Gratis Faction. He's a top-ranked player there. Look, he's a New Zealander, but nobody's perfect. They're also the highest rated out of this whole bunch. They are at 36. So, you know, higher rank than uh, Boots DS. But, um, you know, you never know what could happen. Upsets could happen, but uh, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd bet on any of these teams, unfortunately. Um, I did not mention NRG. I haven't really talked about them much. They've had some very good form recently. They've had map victories over Liquid, Cloud9, SK Optic. Uh, in terms of the NA scene, they are definitely on the up and up. Uh, are they world beaters? I would say not yet, but they're ranked 18. And this is probably their first big LAN chance for a while. So uh, I'd say NRG are going to be... A, you know, the fun dark horse potentially in this in this tournament because, you know, after all as well, you've got FaZe who've just had this demoralizing um, crushing uh, out of Marseille. You know, SK have looked crap. Basically, you know, Renegades haven't looked that great. Um, Cloud9 have looked in disarray. Space Doll just got thrashed. I feel like there's an opening for a team like NRG who've had this really good run-up and now have a platform to actually make something happen. Now, finally, um, <clears throat> just a little bit of uh, housekeeping. The merchandise store of The Truth podcast is hopefully going up this afternoon. It's been a little bit of an issue with Redbubble. Um, the issue is entirely on my side because I'm computer illiterate at this point. I'm beginning to realize, at least in the way things are going. Um, but you'll be able to buy a T-shirt in the next 24 hours, hopefully, if you want to rep at uh, IEM Sydney which I'll certainly be doing. Um, the final thought I'm going to leave you with is also from this book, Fryer in the Belly. 
And it really pertains to the question I've been dealing with as to whether or not I should be playing Counter-Strike, whether or not I should be uh, using my free time uh, to play video games at the ripe old age of 34. And um, in this book, Fry on the Belly, he talks about Howard Thurman, who was a lecturer. And um, this is what he said. He said, After reading aloud from Admiral Byrd's account of being alone and near death at the North Pole, Howard Thurman looked at his class and asked, If you were alone a thousand miles from any other person, it was 50 degrees below zero and you were dying, what would have to have happened to allow you to die with integrity and a sense of completion? And that's the kind of question that makes me realize I'm wasting my fucking time playing video games while my life is flashing before my very eyes. Well, I love Counter-Strike. What am I going to do about it? All right. Hopefully, we will have a chat before I am Sydney. But if not, expect a massive, juicy, fat I am Sydney roundup with all the details in about 10 days once that tournament's over. In the meantime, enjoy the game.